Old Testament, found in Ruth chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 8 to 17 this morning. We're kind of jumping in the middle of Ruth, but just for some quick context, if you're not familiar with the book, Ruth is not an Israelite woman. She's a foreigner who's recently left behind her home, her gods, her family, everything she's ever known. somebody who will let me clean in his vineyard, let me clean in his fields so that I can get something for us to hopefully not starve with for a little while. And then she happens to come to the field of one man who the author tells us, this is a good guy. This is a good man. And Ruth just so happens to find his field. And then that's where we come in when we start reading from Ruth 2 chapter, sorry, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, leave this, but, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have spoken, you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Then she rose to glean. Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheets and do not reproach her. Also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Ruth had very, very simple desires. She needed a place to work and gain food. She needed food to be able to bring home to herself and her mother-in-law. And she needed safety, protection. She is a young, foreign widow woman. That is about as unprotected as you could get in the ancient Near East. You had nobody if that was your situation. But all those desires, all those things that she needed, God met her in the person of Boaz, and far more beyond that. But that's a story for another time. So instead, let's turn to our primary reading and continue on discussing the Beatitudes. And that can be found today. We'll be reading in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 6, 7, and 8 this morning from the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thus far the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. 
May you bless it to our hearts. Let us pray together. Father God, we give you thanks for this scripture that you have provided for us, which you have written down for us, for all of your people throughout all of the world, all of the time, to glean from, to hold on to, to learn from. We pray, Father, now that you would work in our hearts, make us open to hear what you have to say. And Father, guide us, guide this sermon, guide the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts, Lord. Let them be acceptable and pleasing to you because of your Son, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, when we began to read through the Beatitudes, you might have noticed a pattern that began emerging. There's a progressiveness to the Beatitudes. They build on top of each other and they keep moving forward. The first Beatitude laid a foundation. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are aware of their immense spiritual lack before God. And then what was the second Beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn. Those who are poor in spirit are mournful. They grieve their spiritual poverty and the spiritual poverty of the world around them. It makes them. It makes them hurt to see and to know what is missing. And that led into the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. The blessed man is meek and unassertive because he knows that he lacks holiness in the eyes of the Lord. He presents himself to God with gentleness, with submissiveness, with attention, He's ready to love the Lord with all his heart. He's ready to love his neighbor as himself, as the Lord has commanded him. This is the person whom Jesus calls blessed, who he says has the ideal life, has the good life, you might call it. That person knows who they are before God. And in time, that awareness changes them. It changes their self-perception. In their own minds, they become less important to themselves, and God instead will grow in importance. And as we said last week, the blessed man, the man who is happy, who is fortunate, who has that good life, becomes humble because of what God has done in him and is doing continually in him. And that growth in humility, that God-given change in attitude and self-perception begins to change the desires of the blessed man. Before, what he desired, what he wanted, was the fruit of sin, with all of the autonomy, all of the fulfillment that sin promises. But the meek person now knows that he must submit himself, his entire self, to the Lord. And that entire self, his entire being, includes his desires, the things that he wants, that he gives his intentions to. In fact, the blessed man wants his desires to change. He needs them to change because he knows that his old desires, the things that he used to want before knowing Jesus have done nothing good for him. They brought him nothing but harm and nothing but harm to his friends and family. And he wants to be done with them. But what sorts of things are supposed to replace those desires? If he needs to change what he loves, what does it need to be changed to? Well, as Jesus continued to preach the Beatitudes and teach about the ideal godly life, he was telling his disciples, as we said, about the good things that are already theirs, in part because they have already begun to believe in him. These things are not some distant 
Christian ideal. These are things that are true of every believer in part that God is working out in us over time. And it's true for his disciples as well, even at this stage in the narrative, when it's relatively early in Jesus' ministry. And these desires that we'll talk about have been given to the disciples to, by the Lord, and they are desires that will be met in full. They are desires that will be fulfilled. Our theme to summarize this is that the holy, God-centered desires of the blessed man will be completely satisfied by Jesus. As we read through the fourth, fifth, and sixth Beatitudes, we will see three desires that the blessed man will have. First, he will desire righteousness. Second, he will desire to show mercy. And then third, he will desire a pure heart. The desire for righteousness is found in Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Thinking about this word, righteousness, I can't say I hear that word very often at all outside of Christian circles like ours. Most of the time when I hear the word righteousness, usually self comes before it, and that's an extremely negative thing. You might hear somebody being called righteous in that tone that just screams, ooh, look at this guy. Look at this guy who thinks he's so much better than the rest of us, little please. It's not a good thing to be righteous. But for Jesus, according to Jesus, being righteous is an unequivocally good thing to have. It's something to be desired, to be sought after. Why the disparity? Why the difference there between what we modern Americans typically associate with righteousness and what Jesus is calling righteousness? Well, when we in America, when we modern English speakers usually use the word righteousness, I think we mean something like a disciplined morality, perhaps. Somebody who has a strong sense of right, wrong, and is consistent with that. And honestly, probably the person who we call righteous tends to rub it in the face of all the rest of us. That's normally what I think people mean, when, at least in America, when we talk about somebody being righteous. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures and you've studied theology in depth, you know that righteousness can have several different meanings. Several different topics could be talked about with the word righteousness. What Jesus is talking about in this case is something like holiness, behavior and thoughts and desires that please the Lord, like that of the Lord, behavior like the Lord's. A month ago, we saw Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The blessed man, the ideal man, wants to live in that way. He wants to live his life according to the word of God. Every syllable that comes to him from scripture is as precious as a gold bar and as sweet as honey. His desire for the righteousness of God, for the behavior that is like God's, is like hunger and thirst to this man. We've said before, our appetites for food and drink are practically incomparable to just about every other desire that we have as human beings. There's many things that we say that we want or need for a good, healthy life. Food and drink are in a category by themselves. If you don't have food and drink in your life, you are going to die. 
There's no getting around that. That's just that. Well, Jesus says for the blessed man, this desire for righteousness is like the desire for food and drink. He needs it. Craves righteousness. If he does not have the righteousness of God, if he doesn't have the word of God in him, he will waste away. The blessed man wants freedom from every form of sin, every thought, word, and deed that would keep him from knowing the Lord. He feels like he is a practical starter to have the will of God worked out in him. And not only in his life, but the blessed man wants the righteousness of God to be applied to the world around him. <clears throat> Excuse me. When he sees the ways of the world on rejecting the Lord, the consequences of sin on display in front of him, it grieves him, it hurts him. When he sees injustice in courts, when he sees the brokenness of families, when he sees evil in the workplace, and a million other things, the blessed man wants the Lord. Blessed man calls on the Lord to apply his righteousness to every form of sin. And he asks for it to be changed. Ask the Almighty to make those things, to make those people as he always intended them to be, as he created them to be. It's not enough for the blessed man that he be holy. He wants to see every area of creation, everything that lies under the sun, give glory and obedience to the Almighty One who made all until every trace of sin is wiped from the earth, the blessed man will still feel the pangs of hunger for the righteousness of God. But the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness in this way, Jesus says he will get what he wants. He craves righteousness and he will be satisfied. He will be filled up. And he won't satisfy himself like a man who is thirsty might go to the tap and get a drink of water from. He's not going to get the water himself. Jesus says, God will satisfy him. The blessed man cannot satisfy his own desire for righteousness. He cannot make himself more righteous. He cannot bring righteousness and apply it directly to the world himself. God must do this, and God will do it. And on top of that, he is generous. Jesus' Father is generous in his giving of righteousness. He doesn't just give the blessed man or the world a little bit of a tweak here, a little bit of righteousness there, and then say, take this and go away. I mean, grateful I gave you that much. I made your life a little bit better, a little bit more holy. No, Christ's Father is generous beyond measure. He will completely satisfy the longing for righteousness. He makes the blessed man holy and righteous now, and he promises that that craving, that appetite, will be met entirely, the kingdom of God. All people hunger and thirst for something bigger than themselves, something that they can look at and say, that is what gives me purpose. That is what makes the world a place for living in. This is what makes me happy and content. And we look everywhere for those kinds of things to give us that kind of meaning, to save that hunger. But the things of the world will always let us down. Cravings that the world tries to beat might be satisfied for a moment, but it's only ever a moment. It's never for long. Because there's always just one more thing. There's one more goal to meet. There's one more dollar to earn. There's one more lover to conquer. 
There's one more detail to find too. It's never ending. It always leaves us pining for something more, something bigger, something better. But in Jesus Christ alone and in his righteousness, the church finds that thing, that person that satisfies us like nothing else can. Jesus is the bread of life whom we eat from and then we are never hungry again. He gives us living water that quenches our spiritual thirst forever. He speaks to us. He says, thus says the Lord. And when we have ears to hear him, we say, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's who I've been looking for. This is the righteousness of God that I need. And then when we take hold of Jesus and we receive his word as the words of the Lord, then we become satisfied by the holiness that he has given to us. And he works out that holiness. He works out that righteousness in us over time through his spirit, making us to be like him. But how difficult is it for us to remember just how satisfying Jesus is? How hard is it to remember that in Jesus, we really do have all that we need? It's not because there's something lacking in Jesus, because there isn't. But it's because so often we get a craving for something that is forbidden to us. How often do we want the instant gratification that sin promises us? We want the approval of our friends and our peers. We want the excitement that comes from a forbidden relationship. We don't want conflict or fighting in the workplace. We want like five minutes of blessed peace in the house. Sin tells us your desire for those things are good and right and you ought to have it. And don't worry about that righteousness stuff. You can have that later. But your desire for whatever this is that should be met. I think St. Augustine talks about this the best when he was reflecting on his youth as an older man. Augustine was raised in the church, and as a young man, he wasted his life on all kinds of sinful pleasures. And as an old man reflecting on that, he said, I used to pray, Lord, give me righteousness, but not yet. Make me holy like you are holy, but not yet. I want to be satisfied with this first. I want to finish what I'm doing first, and then you can make me holy. Then you can make me righteous. But the righteousness of God satisfies us like sin never can. And thinking about that, I started remembering just childhood things. It's interesting how they come up. Now, my mother used to make macaroni and cheese in two different ways. She'd sometimes make Kraft macaroni and cheese from a box, but she also had a scratch recipe. As a kid, I used to think that the Kraft macaroni and cheese was better for some strange reason. I've never understood that in hindsight. I just thought that the Kraft mac and cheese was better. But then as I got older, as I started getting better taste buds, I guess, I realized that my mother's recipe, which took longer, required more ingredients, more time, was definitely in every way better and more satisfying than any pre-box thing could ever be. And that's what the righteousness of God is like when compared with sin. Sin seems to taste good just for a little bit. It's satisfying, it doesn't take that long, but then it just leaves us pining away for something better or something more fulfilling and really wasn't that good for us in the beginning. But the holiness of God is nothing like that. It is infinitely better, and it is satisfying into eternity. 
And then when we realize that, when we hold on to it, we start to develop that craving for righteousness even more. So let us pray that God would work out that desire for holiness, righteousness in us, that we would hunger and thirst for it the way that we do good food and clean water. Let us pray that he would work out his holiness in us. Let us put to death our craving for sin, lest we fall into the trap that Amos 8.11 warns us against, lest we cause ourselves a famine for hearing the Lord's word, and we spiritually starve ourselves of the righteousness of God. That righteousness is given to the blessed man as a gift from the Lord, a gift that is meant to be shared with other people. Fifth, the attitude shows us how this begins to work out, that desire for righteousness, how it applies to other people, how it applies to the fellow man, fellow men of the blessed man. Specifically, as the second point will teach us, the blessed man desires to show mercy. That's what we see in verse 7, when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does it mean that we show mercy? And why should we want to show it at all, let alone as Christians, why should we want to show it? After all, doesn't mercy mean that we just let offenses slide by, that we don't seek justice or wrongs done? Frankly, why in the world would anybody want that, Christian or not? Especially in this day, when we demand justice and righteousness, you say something to me, I want to get my two cents in. You do something against me, I want to see you brought up, hoisted up. Isn't it important that your position, your rights, your whatever are vindicated? Why would we show mercy? What's the point of that? Today or a thousand years ago or at any time? Why is mercy considered a trait of the blessed man or woman? Well, we've been talking about the blessed man and we've talked about the life that he's been given by the Lord, how he's been changed. The person with the godly life knows how much he has lacked before the Lord. He knows how poor he was. Before he's concerned with anybody else, he knows that he has offended the Lord, that he has nothing to offer God. And when he starts to think about that, he starts thinking about just how much mercy was shown to him by God. He thinks about the righteousness that overwhelmed his sin, the righteousness that caused God to take away his sin thinks about the grace that was freely extended to him when he did not deserve it. He thinks about the hugeness of God, the hugeness of God's goodness and how it applied to him. And now he knows I want that righteousness. And if I'm going to have it, then I need to imitate. I need to put that righteousness that God has given to me to work. And that includes showing mercy to those around me. The blessed man has seen the mercy of God, and now, as he has been shown mercy by the Lord, he wants to imitate it with his brothers and sisters and other people around him. Mercy isn't just a little sentiment, as if the merciful person is just happy, slappy, huggy-wuggy towards sin. It's not that he ignores the sin of other people, that he's indifferent to it, or that he just sort of glosses over it. A man of righteousness, the blessed man, understands the heinousness of sin, and he cares very, very deeply about that. That's true. But it's important to him, more important to him than seeking revenge, is to offer forgiveness to an offender 
wherever he can. He can't do everything. He can't fix every um, situation. But as far as he is able to, as far as was within his power to do so, the merciful man brings godly restoration to other people. Do those other people deserve his mercy? Not in any way. They are sinners who deserve nothing but cold justice. But the merciful man knows that he himself is a sinner too, who deserved only cold justice from the Lord. And yet God has offered him mercy and forgiveness, and now he must do the same. He was unworthy of mercy, but he has been given it. So who is he to withhold mercy from someone else? When he could leave someone else to the consequences of their sin, instead, he offers them a chance at a changed relationship, a restored relationship, restorations between man and man, in imitation of the restoration between God and man. Those who show mercy to other sinners, Jesus says they have been changed by the mercy of God. And because of that, when they come to the throne of the Lord, he will confirm that mercy that he has already shown, that he has already given them. The mercy that they show in this life, that the blessed man or woman shows now, testifies that he or she will receive mercy in the last day. Why must we as Christians show mercy? Because of the sheer weight of mercy that has been shown to us. In the eyes of a holy God, who stands above all other things, every sin, any form of disobedience is an obscenity to God that deserves nothing but condemnation. But what did God do when man and woman sinned against him for the first time? He clothed Adam and Eve, covered up the shame of their nakedness, and then he promised them that a savior would come to save them. The savior has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus sacrificed himself for people who could not have been less worthy of his death. Even on the cross, as he was mocked and scorned, Jesus prayed in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Son of God prayed that his tormentors and his murderers would repent of their sins and receive mercy from his Father, that they would have a restored relationship with God in spite of the wickedness of their crimes. Our God is a God of mercy, who delights in offering forgiveness to anyone who repents of their sin, no matter who they are or what they have done. And that is what the church is made of as well, people who have been forgiven of all of their sins. So as those who have been shown mercy, we too ought to grow in our desire to show mercy to other people. Now, again, mercy doesn't mean that we just look at sin and we say, oh, it's all right, it's not all that bad. Mercy understands how bad sin is. It doesn't try to gloss over an offense, no matter how small or how big it is. But mercy doesn't hold a grudge. Being merciful knows how bad sin is, and then choosing not to make the repentant person suffer for what they've done. Mercy means extending a hand of forgiveness and then trying, again, insofar as it is possible, to build a restored, God-honoring relationship with that person. 
Mercy requires that we feel pity for the person who suffers under their sin and that we seek to alleviate the pain of that suffering with deeds that glorify the Lord. As we do this, we need to keep our eyes on everything that Jesus has done for us. Mercy has to look out, away from me to other people, but it's so tempting to just look at me. Just think about how other people have hurt me and weep only for the wounds that I've suffered. Are those wounds real? Sure, of course they are. Don't gloss over that. But at the same time, I'm not the only person who's in the world who's suffered because of sin. So mercy demands that we take our eyes off of ourselves and look at someone else who is hurting because of their own sin. Are we quick to offer mercy to a person who suffers on their sin, who's repentant of their sin? Or do we gloat over the failures of other people, hold grudges against those who have offended us, who slighted us? But the words of Ephesians 31 verses, excuse me, 4 verses 31 and 32 be on our hearts and lips always. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's because of that mercy of God that we have received salvation through Jesus Christ. And not only salvation, but every gift that leads us and encourages us in godly behavior. They are all given to us by the God of peace. And our obedience to the Lord comes from one of his greatest gifts to us, a gift that we ought to grow in our desire to possess. That desire is our third and final point of this morning, the desire for a pure heart. When scripture uses the word that we bring into English as heart, it's not talking about the blood pumping organ in your chest. And it's also not talking about that classic heart shape that we associate with romance. Most of the time, the heart in scripture is the innermost person of the innermost part of the person your personality, your desires, your will, your worldview, all of these things and other things about your life come from your heart. And they are governed by your heart. Whatever direction the heart is bent in, that is where you will walk. Whatever your heart desires, that's what you will try to obtain. Whatever the heart wants, that is what it's going to try to win the affection of. Whatever the heart wills to happen, that is what you will try to accomplish. A person will love God and man and love the things of God, or they won't because of what the heart wants to do, because of what the heart loves. In verse 8, Jesus commends people whose hearts are pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We call something pure because it is unalloyed unmixed with impurities or other things. Pure gold doesn't have other materials that contaminate the gold. A pure heart is unspoiled in what it wants, in what it is turned towards. A pure heart, according to scripture, looks at God and gives him its full attention because of the mercy that has been shown to him by the Lord. The person with a pure heart will seek out the Lord's face and will seek to do the will of God. 
and he strives to do only what God has commanded. He longs for the Lord because his heart longs for him. It longs to know him, to be in his presence, so much so that everything else around the person with a pure heart, everything else is secondary. Other things might well be good and important and require the blessed man's attention. No question about it. And those things need to get his attention. But at the same time, as good as those things are, they are not God. And they cannot replace God. And they must be ordered in relationship to God, coming after obedience to him. Now, the thing with purity is, purity of heart, is that it is relatively easy to think at least externally. We see godly deeds, doing, people doing the things that God commands, at least externally, and we think that's a good person. That testifies to a pure heart. And it's true, that does, but not always. Doing the right thing according to the Bible might be technically the correct thing to do with your hands or your feet, but simply doing the deed does not guarantee that it was done with a right purpose. A pure heart not only does the right things, it does so for the right reasons, to glorify God and to enjoy him. More often than not, people both inside and outside the church, we equate good morals, good works with a pure heart. I do the right things. I am scrupulous to avoid the wrong ones. Therefore, I'm pure of heart. But that's the attitude of a hypocrite. God sees right through it. For Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Human beings are very good at fooling others and fooling themselves, but God is not, uh, is not deceived. He looks for hearts that are pure and are devoted to him, are devoted to glorifying him for his sake, not to grant his favor. And only the heart that is truly pure is what he calls acceptable. But God in his mercy gives to the blessed man what he requires of him. The blessed person prays David's prayer from Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And the Lord is steadfast and faithful to answer that prayer affirmatively. The blessed man or woman has a pure heart that is turned towards God, that is tuned to listen to him and delight to him. He has that pure heart, not because he worked for it, not because he somehow purified himself, but because God in his mercy has given it to him. What will the pure hearted person receive? Why is he called blessed by Jesus? The blessed person, the pure hearted person will see God. It's difficult to express exactly what it means to see God, as God is a spirit and invisible, impossible to see physically. But to see God means to be in his presence. It means to have infinite and pure holiness and love and justice and mercy and omnipresence and perfect knowledge just in front of you, unveiled for us to behold. It's something that is truly beyond the human ability to grasp. And it's far more awesome and far better and far more terrifying than what we can imagine and far more than we can handle. Of all of the people who lived 
and worship the Lord, and the Lord is called my servant, my friend. Almost nobody is as well beloved by the Lord as Moses. God said of Moses, I speak clearly and plainly with him, like I do no one else. And yet there was one time when Moses asked the Lord to let him see God when he passed by him. Moses asked, let me see your face in Exodus 34. He was 33 and he saw him in 34. But God's response to that was, I cannot let you do that. You cannot see my face. If you see my glory completely unveiled, it will kill you. The most that Moses could see of God's infinite glory was just the fairest part of God's back. And that was after God put his hand over Moses' face. Moses was as close to God as any human being, and he could not see God's face. Another time, in 1 Samuel, there were arrogant people who had God's ark brought to them, and they treated it like a museum piece, like a curiosity. Oh, we have this pretty gold box of God's, that symbolizes God's presence in our town. Cool. Let's go look at it for a while. And God killed a number of men because they had the ark of God, a symbol of his presence among them. And they just stared at it. They just thought it was a neat box. For their arrogance, for their presumption, God killed them. He takes his presence very seriously among sinful men. We can't just walk into the presence of God. We cannot just see him. But we have a savior who has brought us into the presence of the Lord. Because of Jesus' righteousness and his pure heart that has been counted to us because of Jesus' perfect obedience that has been imputed to you and me, like it was always ours, we are seen as holy by the Lord. We've been given clean hearts by the Holy Spirit because the holiness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us forever. Because of that, we are able to come into the presence of the Lord with confidence. We can be certain of his approval. Spiritual purity is ours because it has been given to us from on high. Because of that, when our time comes to leave this world or when Jesus comes back, that happens before our deaths come, we know that we will be able to come into the presence of the Lord and see him unveiled with all of his purity, all of his holiness, and we won't be destroyed. Every desire that we have, every pure and holy desire will be met in the presence of the Lord forever. Just because we have those pure hearts from the Lord now, let us not fall into the trap of thinking that we don't need to do anything else. That we have purity now and we don't have to work on maintaining that purity or doing things that God calls us to. Because sometimes we just think that because we're in, because we made it, in. We have the fire insurance, then obedience will just come naturally, or we don't have to worry about obedience. There are some strands of Christianity that believe that since they are Christians, they are incapable of sinning. That's a very, very serious error. We have been given purity as a gift by the Lord, but he still calls us to be zealous in exercising that purity. The Holy Spirit makes you holy as the Lord is holy. But he's not going to drag you around like you drag a leashed dog that won't stop sniffing the tree. We are called to cooperate with him, to cooperate in maintaining and working out that purity and that righteousness over time. If we have indeed been given that purity, 
And more and more, it should become our desire to listen to God and to obey Him. A pure heart means having the Lord as the center of our lives. Everything focused on Him and done for Him. Jesus has given us hearts to be able to do this. So let us be careful to cultivate those hearts and not let them rot away. All of these things we've talked about, desiring righteousness, being merciful, having a pure heart, these things are not natural to us as human beings. They are really a completely foreign way for us to think and live. It's not easy for us, and it was no more easy for Jesus' disciples. But the disciples were not left to their own devices to figure this out. And neither are we. These things, this holy life, is given to you and to me because of Jesus and what he's done for us. In him, we have confidence that the details of this will be worked out. So in the meantime, with that confidence, with that faith in the Lord, let us be diligent in our obedience and confident in his love. Let us grow in the desire to do these things that are pleasing to Jesus. Let us be confident in the love that has rescued us will certainly bring us to see the face of the Lord glory. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord God, we give you thanks for these things that you have given to us. We thank you, Father, for the desire for righteousness that you've implanted within us. We thank you, Father, that you've been merciful to us, and so we are able to show mercy to others. We thank you for the purity of heart, Lord, that you've given to us in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would help us to work out these things as we desire righteousness, Lord. Help us not only to understand what righteousness is, but to live it out. Purity and holiness before you and before our love. Teach us, Father, obedience and teach us love for you today and all the days of our life. In your Son's name we pray this and we give you thanks for it. Amen.